0: I'm Tom Keane with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Great to see Marvin Goodfriend here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. The friends of Alan Meltzer, professor of economics at the Tepper School of Business at Carnegie Mellon University. Great to have you uh, with us here in studio. I have the, the paper here, The Case for Unencumbering Interest Rate Policy at the Zero Bound, something that Tom touted throughout, uh, throughout August after he delivered that paper at the Jackson Hole Economic Symposium. We'll get to that in a minute, but let me start with uh, Lale Brainerd's remarks at Harvard two days ago. She said that uh, recent developments suggest that the macroeconomy may be at a transition. Uh, you agree with her?
2: Um, absolutely. That's, uh-huh. that's understatement of, uh, of all time. <laughs> um, but, I, but I give her credit. I mean, when, when the Fed wants to change market expectations, they bring out the, uh, one of the more dov- dovish people, and it's very fe- effective in doing so.
1: What do you expect that we're going to hear from, from the Fed chair uh, today? There have been instances in the past where we have seen what we thought is groundwork, and she maybe doesn't reverse course, but mutes, uh, mutes the expectations yeah, somewhat. I,
2: the way the Fed has operated it uh, this week, it's been quite extraordinary. Uh, this is the last week of the course that I teach on money and banking, and I had to tell my students I have not seen – I can't remember a week in which the Fed has changed expectations of a short-term move so radically in, one, in so few days.
1: When you look at the, the panoply of data, all that the, the Fed policymakers are looking at here, are there any deficits, any things here that, that do stand out to you as, as uh, things on which Jen Yellen could hang a delay? Say? <laughs> uh,
2: nothing that occurs to me. If you mention one or two, I might be able to okay. comment <laughs> on them, but I'd have to search my soul to find them.
1: When you, when you look at uh, inflation, w- where that stands now, what's your sense of how comfortable are you with, the, with the, where inflation is and, and that well, in concert with what we're seeing in the labor market as well?
2: I'm, I'm personally, I'm pretty comfortable. I think that, um, you know, so I remember, now here's what's interesting. I remember, I'm old enough to remember when inflation pressures were really severe, and it just doesn't feel like that yet. But, mm-hmm. the, inf- but the inflation rate is at the target, and there's absolutely no case not to move and to move, as I've been saying, uh, in a small campaign. To not just go one and done, not just say you're data dependent, but there's enough water under the bridge, to use a metaphor, to say you know that we really g- got to get going. Mm.
0: David, I got to rudely interrupt and ask this question. I asked it on television, and it's so important. We need to ask it on radio, as well. I am sure that if Kevin Hassett was sitting uh, with his legs feet on the floor on the Oval Office couch, uh, and the president said, "Who should we pick?" Your name would come up. Have you been contacted by uh, anyone within the administration about being, say, a governor? No. No, of the Fed.
2: I, I haven't, Tom. Absolutely not. It's definitive.
1: We tried that with John Taylor and
2: it was, there was a lot more. We got, we got right? even
0: more silence. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the Taylor role in a minute.
1: We, uh, you were mentioning one and done and, and, and all of that. We were talking with Alan Blinder, the former Fed vice chair, yesterday, and he said the debate now shifts uh, to whether it's, it's three or four. Uh, do you what's your, what's your sense of the trajectory here going forward?
2: You know, you're getting you get to the limits of my willingness to yeah. speculate. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I really don't know. Yeah, I'm uh, not in yeah. a position to to, to to make a call between 3 and 4. Uh, I just think the way I think about it roughly is that the, the short rate needs to move up in the vicinity of 2% and, and a little higher. And whether that's 3 or 4, I haven't calculated Yeah, any. yeah. Um,
1: uh, something else that uh, Governor Brainerd spoke about at, at Harvard was what she's seeing overseas. What, what's your sense of, of how this, the U.S. economy, dovetails with what's going on in Europe and what's going on with China at this point?
2: Well, I'm, I mean— I think the U.S. economy potentially is turning the corner. There's no question that, 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 that there's good reason to, to be hopeful about uh, a, a kind of a resumption of economic growth and economic activity and, 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 and small business activity in particular connected with maybe a resurgence of community banking lending and smaller bank lending and so forth. There's a lot of good reasons to think that that's going to happen. Uh, I, I'm not so enthusiastic about China, and we can talk about that at length later for, for a bunch of reasons. And I think you have to be cautious about Europe. Mm. Um, I'm, 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 I'm just a little bit pessimistic on, on Europe and China, but I think the U.S. is moving. There's a good case for the U.S. to move ahead a little bit stronger than it has.
1: I brought up uh, the paper that you delivered uh, last summer in Jacksonville. Take us back to, to when you delivered that, what the reaction was uh, at the time you're focusing here on the utility of, of, of negative rates, and, and we can get into whether or not there's well, a yeah. likelihood of that happening, but do do we have a sense here of the efficacy of, of negative rates at this point?
2: So, so let me let me separate a yeah. few things out. I mean, first of all, the long-term real interest rates in the advanced world have been falling for the past two decades. And, and without going into detail, the first cases is that, that the, the circumstances in which have depressed long-term real interest rates over those two decades are not likely to dissipate anytime soon. Mm-hmm. So that you may see some elevation of long-term bonds as the Fed um, makes a cyclical move here. But I don't think that's going to undo the longer-term trend that we've seen. So with longer-term bond rates historically close to zero, I think if the globe gets into a recession in the near future, the zero-interest bound problem might make a comeback. So I think it's, got, it's out there. And, and what I like to tell my class is I think central banks um, should should be prepared and not presumptuous. And those are the, the kind of that, those are the foundations for writing this paper. If uh, I
0: look at a textbook, which textbook do you
2: use at I don't use I you use don't, my doesn't own. Use one I use my own <laughs> <Your> writings <laughs> over the past thirty years in which I've been trying to teach myself and learn from being at the Fed and, 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 and I and I have a, what we call a course packet, which we put a together. course
0: packet. Mm-hmm. If I if it was to look at your course packet. Are the theories of five years ago, ten years ago, thirty years ago, are they applicable right now for Cherry Yellen and your students?
2: Well, I would say that the theories um, th- there, there was a, a refashioning of macroeconomics that occurred in the 1990s, which which is called by two different names because it was tried to it, it was kind of owned by both sides of the spectrum. There used to yeah. be monetarists and there used to be Keynesians, and then there was something called New Synthesis. Or new Keynesian Do we models. blame
0: Richard Clarita for this? Is it just, we just well, Rich? Rich is,
2: Rich is one of the people who put, who who created this synthesis, and and I was involved in that in earlier yeah. years, and and so central banks basically. The models are are based on this new synthesis, new Keynesian perspective, in which divorced parents have been brought together more or less to some reasonable common ground. Now we disagree about other things, but not about the very foundations about how the core macroeconomics works.
0: The interest rates that are in the Hicksian ISLM model, can they work within the great distortion whether it's on the IS curve algebra or the LM curve algebra, do those rates work given how distorted our fixed income world is?
2: Well, we have a um, – that's – how do I – this is a difficult question because <laughs> there's, there's two, two issues, at least two issues, I think, in your involved in your question. First of all, and LM is a model that doesn't talk about the present and the future. So as a theoretical thing, it's very misleading about what interest rates are all about. This is one of the – one of the reasons Keynesian economics, in my opinion, failed as a guide for interest rate policy as practiced by central banks. You, you talk in terms of saving investment. Interest rates are really about uh, pessimism in the future versus optimism in the present. The more pessimistic the future is, the more people try to save for the future and depress interest rates. The more optimistic people are about the future, the more they try to borrow from, from the future to do the investment in the spending today. That, So interest rates are what I call an intertemporal price. That's completely absent from the is and perspective. And that's one of the reasons why there was a great misunderstanding in what interest rate policy involves. And that caused us, in my generation, to refashion macroeconomics. Within
0: that wonderful analysis, is Chair Yellen working in a model that brings in the Trump confidence boost?
2: That I don't know. I mean, I think... You know, when I talk to my class about this, I say, what is the art of of the Federal Open Market Committee? The art is talking about that kind of question. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's any kind of concrete way to do that except to have a conversation of members of the Federal Open Market Committee. Mm -hmm. And, And I don't know how to deconstruct that for you. In this room, because particularly I given in the most forty-five me. seconds. <laughs> yes, exactly. With mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, Marvin, good
0: friend of Carnegie Mellon University, someone uh, not you're not a hawk. That's not the right way. To, you, you must be insulted <laughs> when someone says, "Oh, there's good friend, the hawk." You if know, you're not a hawk, <laughs> how do you frame yourself versus Governor Brainerd?
2: I, I, I'm someone who believes in stability of the price level, and that old-fashioned fas- way of putting things, or. Uh, a dependable purchasing power of money, meaning in the modern day and age, somebody who's serious about maintaining inflation at some target, maybe 2%, maybe 1% or something.
0: If the Fed had been more like Marvin Goodfriend, would retirees today feel so broke? Would the financial repression have drifted away if they'd gotten to a higher rate regime sooner?
2: Oh, I think if, if the Fed were really committed to price stability— um, Completely and utterly, I think retirees would be in a much better position today. Why? Because years ago, they would have been willing to hold longer term government bonds, paying nominal interest, and they could have counted on the fact that that nominal return would have been locked in purchasing power terms. One of the problems that um, retirees have have had for many decades now is that the Fed is not committed enough to price stability. And so retirees cannot load up on long-term government bonds. It's not responsible because – Agreed.
0: What uh, is the uh, Fed committed to if uh, they're not committed to the nominal rate to save savers?
2: You know, the Fed is a discretionary organization. Uh-huh. That's committed to doing the best it can for the public at the moment.
0: Oh, he's like a lawyer. He's like a general <laughs> counsel. Now that sounds great, from, doesn't it? You
2: need a partially
0: diversified portfolio. There you
1: go. <laughs> we were talking about short bonds and long bond bonds, and you, you, you bring up something called the price of risk transfer, suggesting that the the, the FOMC should be looking more closely. Yeah. And explain why that's the case. Okay,
2: so this is a little bit of a little bit involved, but let me start out. Take us through the weeds. The the. the, the um, Short-term monetary policy over the short term is really based about moving the short rate around whatever the long rate happens to be. And the long rate is governed by longer-run forces. So right now, monetary policy is about moving the short rate up relative to where the, the 10-year yield is. That's fine. That's a separate matter. Mm. I, I'm in favor of doing that. But if we want to talk about what, what are the determinants of where the long rate is – uh... that's that's important that's a separate matter so over the longer run long-term bond rates in the united states are, are basically composed of three components roughly one of them is what we call the real long-term interest rate real long-term interest rates say the indexed bond rate if you will the index for inflation that's governed by longer-run forces having to do with um... population demographics um, confidence in the future whether you want to borrow against a, a bright future or whether you want to save for a future you think is not as bright as today. Those are real forces that govern the what, what we call the riskless real bond rates in the U.S. Then you have expected inflation, which is added onto the bond rate to protect investors against inflation. And, if, and expected inflation, I'm going to give the Fed the benefit of the doubt, uh-huh. maybe 2% for the next sure. 10, 20 years, just for fun. So then you have a third component, which not a lot of people discuss, which is a very powerful component in long bond rates. It's called the cyclical risk premium. And here, monetary policy has a longer-run, very, very important role to play. So let me me tell a a story about the great inflation back in between 1965 and 1983 (laughs) or (laughs) 4. Inflation is rising. During that period, there were a number of recessions, and they were usually caused by inflation getting out of control. The Federal Reserve raising short term interest rates to fight re- inflation in order to fight inflation. the Fed would create a recession, weaken labor markets, uh, cause unemployment, cause consumption to fall, but they would the Fed would do so by raising interest rates, which means bond prices, which go inversely to interest rates would fall in those inflation fighting recessions so if you 're just when you needed the money, the bond market tanks. Mm-hmm. And you're out of work. So if you're going to be holding long-term bonds in those days, <clears throat> you would require a compensation for risk. Something called a term premium. Now, the term premium, various economists have, have estimated these things. And it, ro- it rose as high as four percentage points by some estimates by 1980 when Paul Volcker you know, finally yeah. grabbed the bull by the horns and tried to end that, that s- inflation-fighting period and did end it. Okay, so what happens after that? Do you have enough time to, to get us up to 30 seconds? <laughs> okay, so, so the Fed ends inflation yeah. as, a, as a problem. And what do we have now? The last recession we had was not an inflation induced recession, mm-hmm. it was a recession induced by financial instability. Right. Uh, and so when, f- when financial instability creates a recession, people are thrown out of work, consumption goes down. What does the Fed do? Instead of raising rates, it immediately cut rates, meaning bond prices soar in that sort of recession. Mm-hmm. Now, people – by my judgment, by 1995, people – the market began to sense that the Mm -hmm. the cyclical risk was changing from inflation fighting to fighting financial stability.
0: Okay. We're done with this dissertation. Let me make
2: one and then the term premium went to zero and, in fact, went negative. So now bonds were a hedge against inflation. Okay. Marvin Goodfriend, I
0: didn't get in my question on Sidney Crosby in the Washington Capitals. Professor Goodfriend is from Pittsburgh. This is Bloomberg. Without question, our interview of the day, Brian Weiser. Brian, you saved investors billions by getting out of Facebook early. Billions, you suggest, will be lost by people owning and buying Snapchat here. Financially, two bucks of cash, a couple dollars here and there, and the core business is worth like $7 a share. You round it up to $10 a share. What is Silicon Valley missing in Snapchat?
3: Oh, well, thanks. That was quite an quite introduction. Uh you know, you could argue Silicon Valley is missing nothing because they realize they can invest in another company and have an equally good exit. Um, the bigger question is what are investors missing? Please. Um, the two are not the same thing. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's funny because you, you, people could ask, like, what makes you think this will be an unsuccessful IPO? It's a very successful IPO for the issuer. Um, the issue is, again, from the perspective of the buyer, the investor. and. Um, you know, I, I get the sense that there's there are two reasons why uh, investors who are buying uh, the stock have bought it. Uh, one is because they're using metrics that I think are inappropriate for purposes of valuing a company such as Snap. Specifically, they're using some kind of metric like, you know, value per user. Or they're starting off with an uh, average revenue per user, and uh, and then trying to compare yeah, it to, uh, say, Facebook and going d- there. D- Those d- are totally ridiculous.
0: <laughs> okay, there at the top line revenue dynamics in your 11-page report, you go down the income statement to the margin generation away from average revenue per user. Come on, we're going from $26 to $10. Where is the margin failure in their belief?
3: Well, this is the point that I think anyone trying to make a comparison against, any, uh, say, Facebook on, on that basis ignores that Facebook is going to be structurally a much higher margin business. Twitter will be a much higher margin business just based on what Snap has said that they plan to do. Um, and so you've got that piece. The second piece is the fact that, okay, well, we can be generous and assume that the company can continue to grow, not a given, but you know there's some evidence that despite the slowdown in user growth that they can keep up uh, uh, consumption at least of the platform um, and they 're never going to be able to monetize as well as Facebook for two reasons the first uh, even proportionally, and the first reason is they will never be as international or be able to monetize their international uh, um, uh, in, in right. Inventory as well as Facebook, just because you just don't have feet on the ground in, in Singapore as much as, say, Facebook does. You don't have feet on the ground in Kuala well, Lumpur Well, they'll expense
0: it out. David, jump in here, please, with Brian. Brian, I just reason.
1: want to ask you about um, your your cautious optimism, as you put it in the note here, uh, vis-a-vis the maturity of this company. I read this note, and and so much of what comes across here is that say a young company with promise. It makes me wonder why – uh, this company debuted now, and and um, you know, g- give us a sense of the degree to which you are optimistic here that this company is going to figure stuff out here in the next few years.
3: Yeah, well, and, and let's clarify. I I, I put, preface uh, the note by saying I'm cautiously optimistic about the business. Meeting. Yes. I, I don't I don't think it's necessarily a flash in the pan. Um, they have created a successful product. They have been able to attract a lot of great people, and that. Give some reason to believe that, well, give them benefit of the doubt okay. that they can keep it going, right? But, um, yeah, the bigger question is just whether or not they can grow into the Okay,
0: page 11. Problem. Come on. Page 11, paragraph 5. This is classic Brian Weiser. Folks, I'm not going to send out his report. You've heard it before. We protect his copyright, contact Pivotal Research. You've got $1.4 per employee of greed stock on the back end. Twitter was only greedy at 612000 So they're over twice as dilutive on restrictive stock units as Twitter was. And look what those shares did.
3: I, I told you they are able to hire great talent. And if you're paying $1.4 million per average employee in stock. Even the New York uh, Jets
0: would win yeah. if they did that.
3: Exactly. And so that that's a reason to have some confidence. Now, the reason why you might want to be a little less positive is because if employees were granted those shares with an average stock price of 15 or $16 – as long as the stock works, then those employees stick around. But if it doesn't, then there's a greater risk that those employees do not. And so that's a double-edged sword of sorts. But, uh, yeah, it's quite something. Um, now, it's, it's not— Oh,
0: come on, hard. Brian. Brian, come on. <laughs> Folks, let me back up here. Brian Weiser was a pinata when Facebook came out when he said, do a sell. And, of course, then he looked like a genius and he went long at the right time, blah, blah, blah. It's just greed, Brian. They're playing by a different rule book than anybody else in industrial America would play by. Brian Reeser, if somebody did this at WPP, wouldn't they be, if Martin Sorrell did this at WPP, he'd be down at the SEC, wouldn't he?
3: Not necessarily, although, by the way, there was a fun uh, commentary in the uh, document about friends and family uh, stock issuances. I think most people probably missed that, and that's something that kind of raised my eyebrows. But no, in terms of uh, 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 the stock issuances of uh, $1.4 million per, per, per employee, it's their right to do so. If that's how they want to run their business. Again, I'm not an investor. I'm an analyst. I'm saying if they think that's how they want to run their business, that's fine. fine. Where I quibble with the, many in the investment community is whether or not and how it's appropriate to incorporate that into evaluation. And I think if you, it's like when Facebook bought WhatsApp, right? And then they bought Oculus. Mm. Now, we can argue that strategically, maybe those were great transactions, but you have to account for it that the stocks went up so much, well, went up with WhatsApp I brought my price target down by eight percent because they're diluting the stock. Nothing wrong with that, um, but uh, you know if they're making the decision to run their business, that's the way that way. That's fine. Okay. But I think that investors need to pay more yep. attention to issues David, like dilution than they do. I
0: want to get. I, let me make this clear on dilution. Google one hundred and forty-four thousand. Facebook two hundred and thirty thousand. I mentioned Twitter at six hundred and twelve thousand. I think. And Snapchat has a one point four million dollar employee gift. David, you got that when you joined uh, surveillance, right? right? And friends yeah.
1: and, friends, <laughs> and, family, friends <laughs> and Family of <laughs> Surveillance. <laughs> Brian, you say your model feels potentially stretched at even getting a $10 per share, a $16 billion valuation. I was reading Jim Stewart in the New York Times. He says, uh, you know, the only comparable social media company that continues to lose money is Twitter, and no one at Snap wants to compare it to Twitter. He goes on to say, <laughs> Snap said it generated $404 million in sales in 2016. A valuation of $34 billion is about 84 times revenue. Isn't that the beginning, middle, and end of the story here, just the degree to which uh, you've got valuation. Here that is hugely outside what this company's bringing in.
3: Yeah, no, I mean it is. It's it, it's massively uh, overvalued. By the way, that thirty four billion dollar number is wrong. I think it's more like forty billion dollars. Okay. because Again, if you don't use the right number on the share count, which I don't think most people are, because of the dilution we know is going to happen if you study the RSUs they're issuing, uh, it's actually a forty billion dollar valuation as of right now. So it's even
1: worse. You point out in in, in this note that you're not getting the metrics that you really want to be seeing here. Why is it so important for you to see monthly active users? What does that tell you about how people are using the service?
3: Yeah, well, that's among the metrics that I think would be uh, helpful. Um, Now, they're playing to their strengths, I'm sure, and if they think their daily active user is uh, a story they want to lead with because it it speaks to their engagement story, uh, it's understandable. But if we're trying to look at the advertising business, which we are, um, we want to be able to compare it. Uh, better to uh, Facebook, to Instagram, to other platforms that are advertising-driven. Now, that said, even if they gave us the number, I'd still be skeptical because I've, I'll try a third-party analysis of their number over their number. And so, you know, but it's still nice that they provide what they believe the numbers are the internal metrics that they're using.
1: You mentioned competition there. I look at Instagram. I see the stories function on Instagram. How How real a concern is that, the fact that, Uh, Facebook, Instagram via Facebook, uh, was able to do kind of what Snap has been doing for some time here. Don't they have the might here to Mm -hmm. surpass this company pretty quickly?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, Instagram is uh, bigger than Snap among 18 to 34s in the United States. They have all the targeting capabilities that Facebook provides them with. Um, They have an existing sales force around the world (laughs) and the ability to mimic yeah. features and ad products um, pretty quickly. So, yeah, it's a, it's a big competitive threat.
0: Yeah, let's get you into the studios in New York when you're here again. Brian Weiser, thank you. So I didn't ask a question there, David, at the end because I was Snapchatting with uh, John Farrell.
1: <laughs> um, you guys always snapping. That's yeah.
0: <laughs> <right>. <laughs> Unbel- I just can't. Brian Weezer, like, with a public good there. I can't convey to He's got folks. a
1: sell on the stock? What's he say? $10. $10. Value. Yeah, well, it's
0: got a $7 value. He grosses it up to $10, yep. uh, but it's the meat of the report is as typical with Brian Weezer. It's not some mouthy thing. There's some real work involved in it, in uh, securities analysis. Uh, David, we talked to Brian Weiser and he and a number of sell side troops look at the financials for Snapchat and do not like what they see. It's really an interesting, interesting report of getting down to a financial valuation off of the stupidity where even Mr. Weezer says it will be an uncommon buy. Joining us with the single best call on Facebook I know is David Kirkpatrick. I was with him the day of the Facebook IPO with the great Paul Kodrowski, and you nailed it. You said, whatever the valuation does off the idiocy, the IPO, David, you said, this thing is going to work. Can you say the same for Snapchat? If we get a Weezer Snapchat, 17 to 26, down to $10 a share, that the actual Business model of Snapchat will create revenue, create cash flow, and create shareholder value. Well, I'd say
4: a qualified yes. the The actual business of Snapchat is almost certainly going to make a nice, profitable business that's going to have a lot of meaning in the economy and in the marketplace going forward. Is it the kind of macro once in a? lifetime opportunity that the market seems right. to be treating it as? No, it okay. is not.
0: Well, that's what Twitter was. Is it another Twitter where it's good people cashing out in the, the capitalist degree to the moment where the shareholders are going to get run over because it's another Twitter?
4: I actually think it's not another Twitter in the sense that it will have a really good advertising opportunity long term. Uh, it does have the potential to sort of become the de facto place for showing video to millennials. That's not the same thing as to be a face like Facebook-like company that spans the globe and becomes for almost literally everyone and has that aspiration and the potential to achieve it. But it does have a real business. The, the, the analog that I've been making is with LinkedIn mm. because I think actually it has the, the potential first, to really serve a specific demographic very effectively but not all humans.
1: What's the lesson to be learned here by how easily uh, Instagram and Facebook were able to copy what Snap is doing here? How should how should Snap react well, to what's
4: happened there? Uh, how, how fearful should they be that that happened? Well, I think that doesn't comfort them. Um, it, it's a big difference, in fact, even if you compare it to any of these companies when they went public. Pretty much none of the giant Internet companies that we talk about day in and day out that are so important had head-to-head competition of any significance at the time of their IPO. Snap does, because Facebook, and through its Instagram subsidiary, has very effectively copied key parts of what Snapchat does. So that's something seriously to worry about. I don't think that it's an exact either-or situation. Most of the young people I know seem to use them both very freely for slightly different things.
1: I'm, I'm keenly interested in how companies like these evolve. You look at Facebook and how wholly they got into video. Uh, Sheryl Sandberg saying this is going to be a sort of video-first company We're going to really play video up. What's Snap's next step? What are they telling investors about where it's going
4: from here? Well, you know, the, the thing about Snap's long-term potential is that it sort of seems to me like you can think of it like the ultimate... Cable network for millennials. You know, it's going to be it. You know, it started with disappearing messages. Now it's you know vomiting rainbows, and pretty soon it's going to be Precisely. watching video <laughs> in short chunks for you people know, who have no I, attention sorry. span but they want to see that, all their video the, using this mobile device.
0: The band vomiting rainbow, they did dead like no one. It was amazing <laughs> what they did with Alabama Getaway. Let me there read a go. let me read a chapter from the the paragraph from the Bible. The fact that he was doing something slightly illicit gave Zuckerberg little pause. He could be a touch headstrong and like to stir things up. He didn't give ask permission before proceeding. It's not that Zuckerberg sets out to break the rules. He just doesn't pay much attention to them. Oh thank you. From the book the Facebook. (laughs) I hadn't read that myself in some (laughs) time. I know you've got the Snapchat effect coming up. Does the leadership of Snapchat in the least bit are they Zuckerberg like?
4: In some ways, they are. I don't think at the macro level they are. It, it's not a comp- Evan Spiegel is not the kind of world visionary once in a century kind of person that Zuckerberg... I really think Zuckerberg is that okay. kind of a person. But I think Spiegel's a great business leader, great visionary, great product I person. It.
0: I'm, I love it, David. What's he going to do on the second and, conference call? And Imran call? Khan, who's the strategy guy at Snap,
4: okay. is a, I, brilliant. I don't care. What are they
0: going to do on the second conference call two quarters from now?
4: I think it's a serious concern. I think, you know, considering they just recently had a quarter where growth was unexpectedly bad and they blame it on the Android mm. app. I mean, what are they... How many quarters are they going to have where they can exactly. blame problems? problems on okay. stupid little things they can't One control.
0: final question. You are so intertwined within the tech community. Can you get Miranda Kerr out here with us?
4: Oh, <laughs> Please? I Please? <wish. laughs> You know, you're and the only you, one. would you rather have her on TV than radio?
0: Come on. No, no. We would rather have her on, on <laughs> You want her in here. That's that's how clumsy we are. David Kirkpatrick. Tom, it's so um, no good to be with again, you. Thanks again, and congratulations on your really work on seeing a Facebook drive to terrific valuations. Folks, it is dated like David Kirkpatrick, but I do recommend for a dose of humility yeah, consider— The Facebook Effect, it is a lovely, beautifully written book on a fragile kid from Harvard. A little bit of time, way better than the movies that are out there (laughs) as well. Okay, let's dive into it. We need to get you ready for this weekend when you open your 401k envelope and you go, How can I be this far behind? Julian Emanuel is with UBS and he, he dovetails equities into derivatives into looking forward in the market. So I think that's enough introduction. Great to have you <laughs> back here. It's great Bar- to have you. Marvin, good friend here today, and Mickey Levy. And we did Snap? Do you do Snapchat?
5: Uh, well, you know, it's it, it's now listed, so uh, we're certainly. But you don't gonna do it on your cell phone. Uh, I leave that to my teenage. Okay, go. good. So we can continue <laughs> we'll the conversation.
0: I need to catch up. I made a set of decisions where I was wrong on the equity market. I got to catch up. Do I use leverage to catch up in equities?
5: You don't catch up. Okay, you. you what's past is past. And and this is a common mistake that we see. Next week, we're going to celebrate the eighth birthday of this bull market, up 250 percent. And that's the time when there tends to be more emotion than usual, when the bull market gets in the late stages, when the economy is potentially accelerating, when the Fed is raising rates, when optimism starts to uh, coalesce. You have to be careful, and staying disciplined means for us is taking a balanced approach, but there are certain sectors at this point that where we think that it has a lot of edge, but you do need to maintain discipline. Right, such as? Uh, well, financials is, is, has been a great story, obviously, for the past several months. But the issue with financials is you really have everything going for it right now, still reasonably valued in a market that in general is approaching the upper ends of its valuation bands. Um, in an environment where rates are rising, obviously a positive, and deregulation is potentially on the rise as well in Washington. So, from, from our viewpoint, it's got a lot going for it. We also also like healthcare and technology, uh, sort of for different reasons, but for a similar reason. If, as we think, we found out this week. Tax reform is going to be a challenging thing to accomplish. At the end of the day, the one thing that both Republicans and Democrats appear to agree on right now is repatriation. And healthcare and technology are the epicenter of the offshore cash, and they will benefit. So
1: there's been this realization that tax reform is going to be difficult. At the very least, it's going to take a lot longer than I think a lot of investors thought it would take. Why is the same thing not true for deregulation? In other words, you look at financials, there's the promise of change here. Uh, are we going to see some, some reckoning, some reevaluation of how quickly that's going to happen as well?
5: It, likely we will. But I think what we're finding, with certain exceptions, obviously the Affordable Care Act being one of them, it is easier to strike pens through things than try and try and add initiatives. But, you know, we do fully expect this review of Dodd-Frank, while well, we don't expect the rollback in, yep. in its entirety, there will be portions, and, and that's a tailwind for the financial industry.
0: When I look at the sum of this, and what people want is guidance. I mean, there's a human condition. I got fear about the markets, whatever, and they go to guys like you and, you know, everybody else that we talk to every day. When you put your models together at UBS, do you have a confidence in the, the theories that underlie those models? Or because of the great distortion, you're, you're in unknown territory bringing the distortions of the bond market and central bank theory over to equities?
5: The, the distortions have definitely changed the way that people perceive the markets. And, and in a lot of ways, if you think about the last seven or eight years, the fact that monetary accommodation has been the central focus in the investment environment has in a lot of ways caused the inflow into passive products, uh, the the alpha search becoming Mm. more and more difficult. But for us, this is a time when we really want to lean on history's lessons. And what history's lessons show us is that even though the market is at its high end of valuations – it can go higher, but what we need to see is a continued confidence, and the way confidence stays high mm-hmm. is seeing concrete action, You know, the coming together of all these big plans that, that have been mooted. You
1: mentioned technology. Tom said we weren't going to talk about SNAP, but let's talk about it just at least in, in broad brush here. Uh, the kind of companies that you like in the technology space, how different are they from uh, this company that debuted yesterday? W- what about it is is concerning to you, interesting to you? Uh, how do you react to it? Contextualize it for us, if you would.
5: Well, w- what's interesting here I- is that technology has actually been, if you go back to the election, one of the sectors that really got left behind – in November and December, uh, given the fact that for the most part, uh, the multiple, certainly in areas like software, is uh, much higher than the market multiple. And as rates rose, you were discounting those multiples. But for us, the story is about you know, growth, innovation, and as we said before, cash. And there is really a large swath of, uh, of the technology space that actually has all of those attributes.
1: Uh, Tom and I were sitting here when we hit Dow. 20,000. The cold duck was out. The room temperature champagne was there, was there as well. We we progressed farther. We hit 21,000 this week. How much farther do you think we, we have to go here? What, what could set us back? What could change the direction of this market?
5: Well, uh, so so I think, again, and and Tom alluded to this at, at the top of the hour, Chair Yellen's speech is much more important than normal because mm-hmm. I think what we've seen this week is really an, an unprecedented ratcheting up of expectations in a, you know an incredibly quick manner and so you know whereas this time last week there were still questions about you know whether March was even on the table right. as as a right hike now the market believes okay. it's a done deal can I hedge
0: 1987 portfolio insurance boy that worked out uh, can <laughs> I I mean you and I know Newmont mining gold all these case studies you and I studied in school at some point hedging doesn't work I've got locked in bull gains alpha's up 21 percent I'm up 17 percent I'm miserable but I got to lock in my seventeen percent. Can I hedge here, or is the math not work?
5: The VIX is eleven. Okay, that that tells you that you know if if you're looking for protection, there are lots of, of low cost ways to implement it, and 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 that again is really part and parcel. Of 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 what we've seen uh, okay. underlying the rally. Okay, Greek
0: letter guy. If I hedge here, <laughs> if I hedge here, am I giving up
5: capital gain through 2017? You don't necessarily have to. Again, it it comes down to the fact that if you just buy options, uh, you don't necessarily have to sell off your upside. And interestingly enough, part of the last several months is that stocks are moving mm-hmm. their own way. Correlation is low. People that are picking stocks are actually returning alpha, and when you've got more alpha, when you're beating the okay. benchmarks, you can spend money on Which hedges? Greek
0: letter excites you the most right now? Vega, Gamma, Theta, Sigma, Delta, Om- Omicron? Which
5: is it? Are we at the fraternity rush here? <laughs> it's a fraternity <laughs> rush In the option
0: space, wise guy, which Greek letter is where you can make money right <laughs> now?
5: We, we actually like Gamma. You um, like Gamma. Yeah, Gamma, because basically w- what's happening here is that we're going to have two risk right. events on the Ides of March. We're going to hear from the Fed, we're go- and we're going to start thinking about what the government has to do to keep funding itself. And so the, it's convexity. T- to translate, that's it.
0: Very good, uh, Gura. Go. <laughs> Very good. Gamma, acceleration, convexity. Good morning, Lizanne Saunders of uh, Charles Schwab. I don't know if she's listening. Sometimes she does. She's gallivanting around. (laughs) Lizanne Saunders and I like to talk about one M. Zweig, Martin Zweig, who uh, is every day missed, not only in New York City, but worldwide in investment, in common sense. And there was that idea, don't fight the Fed, from Mr. Zweig. But Julian Emanuel with us, with UBS, so much... Was you're on the trend and the courage to stay with the trend. I just put up, Julian, a fancy Bloomberg chart, which is it's not perfectly textbook, but boy, it's awfully close, which is the trend is extended, but it's an elegant chart up, up and away for equities. In this case, the S&P 500. How do you daily find the courage to stay in an extended trend? with confidence, or you can do other things in your life. How do you stay in a bull market?
5: Well, so for us, again, these are the lessons of history. Uh, There's two things here. The first is, if you go back to 1990, none of the bull markets since 1990 have ended without a recession following the top within 12 months. When we look out at 2017 and 2018, and you know the New York Fed has an indicator uh, that it publishes, the probability of recession in the next 12 months is 4%, quite low. So for us, that really does reinforce the case uh, of staying with equities. However, I would say this. One of Marty Zweig's other uh, famous sayings was three steps in a stumble because he was really the true Fed watcher. And so from that perspective... On 20 times trailing earnings over 18 times 2017 earnings, we are watching the march fomc meeting very closely it would be the third hike in in the series of rate hikes
1: what are you seeing when you look at flows flows into equities right now how's that affecting what the market
5: is is doing right now the public is very enthusiastic it is not maximum enthusiastic as it was in 1999 and 2000 which gives us cause to believe that we that valuation could move up even further um but that has been a distinct change based on the last two and a half years. And certainly the change really did happen in November, December, and, and obviously year to date. So we watch those very closely right now. We've had this huge gravitational pull by politics here over these last few months. I'm
1: struck by what you're saying about the importance of this March meeting. Has the Fed sort of come back into position as the, the, the thing that you're looking most toward right now? Has politics faded back a little bit? Or are we seeing a, a, a rejiggering of what's driving what?
5: Uh, my suspicion is politics is never really going to fade. Uh, certainly, the next Not three the next four years. No, yeah. no, highly unlikely. But but the fact is is that if you look at the last several years, for the most part, the market has dictated the narrative to the Fed, with very rare exceptions. And this is one of these yeah. times where the Fed has taken back the narrative. You
0: mentioned the lack of correlation. Stocks are on their own now, and the shift active. Okay. The index funds are bringing in a gajillion dollars. One of the quiet things this week we've barely talked about, folks. We did, we touched on it. Was Abby Johnson up at Fidelity finally falling on the cost-cutting sword? They're going to lay off tons of people, restructure, lower commission rates. They're an active manager dealing with the challenges. Okay, help me here. I mean, the public's gone to index because of low fees, and they've actually done pretty well, right?
5: Why is that going to change? the the trend of the money flows isn't going to change per se that that is something that you know again week after week the flow data that we see is positive and it's going into etfs and it's going into passive products it's just that you're in an, in an environment where with volatility as low as it is And stock correlation as low as as it is, which actually causes the volatility to stay low. It's just a good environment to make money, you know, selecting single stocks. And actually, the more investment into ETFs there is, the more opportunity is created.
0: Okay, uh, we have breaking news, which Mm -hmm. I'm going to.
5: This is the Deutsche right Bank now, news, yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, you got it up. Here.
1: I got it up here. Deutsche Bank said they study I, I, options I, I, this I, month to yeah. boost its capital. Uh, its yeah. supervisory board said to meet in mid March, saying to weigh a stock yeah. sale and a partial asset management IPO. We're,
0: we're going to say goodbye right here to Julian Emanuel. Because tell, let me tell you, folks, someone from the Union Bank of Switzerland can't comment on <laughs> Deutsche Bank. <laughs> Julian, get out of here. Save your job. Oh, yeah. Julian Emanuel, thank Great you, thank you. you. I, so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gurra is at David Gurra. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.